Hello, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, fellow travelers along the way. Welcome to another episode of the Avalon Mentors Podcast. Welcome, Cameron Thompson, to my show. Good Hobbit morning. <laughs> it's good to be here. Good morning. Good morning, and I look forward to talking about the Hobbit with you today. Let's do a couple things first. Um, first off, how's yeah. the weather there in hmm? Italy? How's the weather? The weather. the weather is beautiful. It is a morning to be good on. Actually, afternoon here, um, but uh, sunny and 60s in Fahrenheit terms. But Very gorgeous, nice. out clear skies. How about Minnesota? Well, it's morning here, and it's cruddy out, and uh, wind is blowing from the north. It's going to drop down to about negative 16 degrees. It's uh, snow and ice and sleet out right now, and uh, pretty gray, so dark. Negative rock. Negative 16 Fahrenheit? Yeah, that's where we're going. Ouch. <laughs> so, <laughs> don't envy those me. Those are numbers they don't even have here. <laughs> don't envy me just because it's cold. I mean, you know, not everywhere can be perfect. <laughs> um so we're talking about the hobbit today and i think one of the first questions anybody would ask is why are we qualified to talk about the hobbit right you know not just mo could talk about the hobbit (laughs) so i guess i'll start off first um i i've been reading the hobbit since i was well it was read to me as a boy by my father and I remember nights by the fire there in uh, Three Rivers, Michigan, and went through The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and several of the small tales. And so it's been in my life for as long as I can remember. It's really intricately wound up with my consciousness. But I've been teaching it. I think I started teaching it back in Texas when I was back there in Texas, and that was like 25 years ago plus. So I've been teaching The Hobbit pretty consistently almost every year to young people between eighth grade and, and 10th grade, pretty much every year since uh, I started teaching. So again, well, it's one of the books, it's very, you know, part and parcel of who I am as a teacher as well. I don't claim to be a scholar per se or published uh, any essays, but I do think that I have sufficient experience with the novel. And more than that, I also have a great love for the novel too, which I think qualifies anybody to talk about a thing. Amateur, right? Right. Me, I also grew up with The Hobbit. Um, you know, I had it read to me as a child, um, and uh, and and The Lord of the Rings. Actually, that was the first. This was the thing when I was in elementary school. They had just initiated those computers. Had just kind of become a thing in the schools. The green screen, yes. you know, these these Macintosh thing, the the original Apple kind of bits there that were in all the all the public schools. And there was a program to incentivize reading among youths and children and if you you know you, you could rack up so many points by taking these quizzes uh on this computer thing that they would roll in on the old av card uh, and you'd sit outside the classroom and you'd, you'd try and take the you know answer these questions trivia questions essentially about the book and if you racked up enough points you could get coupons you get a free pizza at pizza hut 
And that was the, uh, and the Hobbit, when I was in third grade, the Hobbit was the, the book that I, I did to do it. Cause it was, you know, it was one of these like mega points level books. It wasn't just how to eat fried worms or something. <laughs> I read that book. <laughs> yeah. Read for food program, kind of like the Hunger Games. Yeah, that seemed to have worked out really well for the majority of the population. <laughs> right. right, really conditioned them for the world they were entering into. <laughs> oh yeah, because when you went to, uh, brown screen computers and then RGB computers and then they have the mega chip and the super uber double quadruple mega chip with the uh, extra processor you know prepare you for being able to play Fortnite so yeah right good 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 so yeah so it's, have, it's been been with me and I've been uh, been a big part of my life as well that way. have you ever taught it before in class I haven't I haven't actually I look forward to doing so in the very near future um as uh some you know, career trajectory is is taking me towards uh god willing hopefully a, a actually a, a philology position um that uh that i'm exploring right now and the ability to to teach it there i've actually got a dear friend who, who teaches at a university and he teaches it as part of his um uh, english essentially an introduction to english as a foreign language uh, okay he uses, yeah. he uses the hobbit or the um fellowship of the ring uh, to help with the high-level English language uh, learners to introduction to English literature. But not the other two books. No, he doesn't. I mean, there's not enough time in a semester to do the full oh. thing because they're going into it as a piece of literature to get a, you know, habituated to also then this worldview, obviously, is a part of that. That's the, that's the stickler that the, the great series is that you get into the first book and you, how do you stop? You know, it's, it's like they're still out there and they're still, you know, the fellowship's broken and Gandalf is, well, not to give away a spoiler here, but Gandalf's dead, you know. And you're right, it's it's a voluminous piece of work. Uh, to, yeah. Yeah, you'd have to take almost a whole year to teach it. I mean, as we're finding, as we will find a look at my little crystal palantir here looking into the future you know we're set up to to speak about a chapter of the hobbit a week and that'll take us well into the summer it will um, yeah. and that's just the hobbit and i'm okay with that you know i'm okay yeah. with well absolutely and i think that's yeah i'm okay with teaching and talking about it over that period of time but it's tolkien's works are not like you said uh what was the work you used like uh, how to eat fry worms it's not right. Not like that. It's not like some work you just breeze through and, and give a quick synopsis and move on. It's there's so much in his works. I was mm -hmm. looking at C.S. Lewis' uh, work the other day, The Silver Chair, which I do still love. But I don't want to bash Lewis too much. But the the difference is pretty stark between Lewis. Yeah, and oh. yeah. yeah. It's it's stark. It's a stark difference. I was surprised to find out too that Tolkien got really mad at him in a couple of instances because Lewis would write and send immediately to publishers, no revisions at all. Uh, that was his habit. And so all those, well, that explains a lot. Those Narnia books are first drafts, baby. Wow. Well, yeah. And, and I think Tolkien, you know, cause Tolkien's legendarily a guy who was a stickler for detail. I mean, right down to moon mm -hmm. cycle, armor structures and maps. And he was, he just would rewrite a thing over and over again. And I mm -hmm. uh, got, Un uh, Alan and Unwin's uh, nerves as publishers because he, he wouldn't send things in on time. But what he sent in, I mean, gosh, talk about craftsmanship. Amazing pieces. Yeah. Of, really amazing yeah. pieces. And this, this book, as an introduction, I mean, you know, 
people who haven't read The Hobbit, if you haven't read The Hobbit yet, where have you been? You know, I, it's, it's like, gee whiz, I, I have never heard of that country, America, or whatever, you know, it's, um, it, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty darn ubiquitous these days, partly because of Jackson's mm-hmm. lousy treatment of it in the, in the movies. But it's been around right. for a while. So. And, it's, and it's worth reading. It's, it's no time like the present to start reading it if you haven't read it. And if you have read it, uh, read it again more recently with fresh eyes, right? Because it's, as you found, Will, I'm sure too, you know, rereading, especially a book like this, you, you read it as a different person as yes. you read it over time, which means the story itself changes because yes. the narrative enters into your narrative and your narrative is now different. You're and absolutely- so you see things differently. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. We always had the discussion about Beowulf in uh, high school because Beowulf yeah. was read. And well, we've read that already. Parents would say, we should read other books, you know, so let's move on. But my colleague and I used to say, no, you read it as bookends, freshman and senior year, because the book doesn't change, but you do. And, right. and the goal, if the goal of art is to prompt anagogy, prompt self-reflection and, and understanding mm-hmm. of you couldn't do much worse than take a phenomenal work like Beowulf or Tolkien or the Iliad and reread it. Right. Because there's no doubt about it. It's, it's a rich piece of material. Um, just some, you know, quick things. The Hobbit published in 1937, uh, written originally for his kids. Um, they, 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 enjoyed the story so much. He put it down and he, he fleshed it out. And then it was so popular that everybody said, you need a sequel. And so he wrote the Lord of the Rings from that. So the, the Lord of the Rings was written in two, like two waves. One was where I'm writing a sequel and then suddenly he switched gears and said, no, I'm writing a whole new thing. And so Lord of the Rings takes on, that's why like the, some sections in Lord have like the Tom Bombadil and things like this. Cause he wrote them originally as sort of entertaining for kids. And then it's like, I'm working that into a bigger thing. And so he re- mm-hmm. reworked stuff. But the Hobbit itself, there's that famous story of him in his job as a philologist, finding a blank page in the composition notebook. You know this story, right? Mm-hmm. Any teacher knows that one of the biggest onerous tasks <laughs> is to grade the essays. Grade the yeah. essays. It's like you've got three or four page essays from say uh, 50 to 100 students. It's gonna take you forever. And they're, they're not always great. <laughs> <laughs> So going through one of those books and finding a blank page suddenly, and he was overjoyed by it. And that's where he wrote, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit, which was the genesis for this whole book. And of course, he'd been mulling it over and thinking it because he was steeped in all that Norse tradition and the Kalevala and all. But but I wanted to maybe, I want to segue in because I've got a couple different subjects I'd like to see if we can hit. And um, for clarity's sake, I'll go over them here. The one is that a, a connection between the Hobbit and the dragon. Another one is I want to talk about his Turkish side and what that means, the Turkish side. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to talk about nature mythology. Oh, and by the way, I have old school going on here. So I've got the, this is old school. And that's what I'm using over that's here. That's right. So um, I want to talk, and you, you said you wanted to talk about names and word meanings. Absolutely. That would be so awesome. Um, yeah. And then dwarves. Yeah. The names of me, the names and the meaning of words, I think, is a is a foundation. I mean, it's really what he opens up the chapter with, uh, which is just say he opens up the book with. But the power of the map, 
and then the dwarf song. Okay, good. Well, let me start with an opening question, sort of a leading question, because you had mentioned this earlier about how it's worthwhile uh, rereading it and all. Mm -hmm. uh, the book itself is worthwhile reading in the first place. We, we, we talked about why it's worthwhile rereading. Why is the book worthwhile reading at all, do you think? Because if you read it, um, really read it, uh, that is to say, there's, you know, there's different ways you can read a book, right? I think this book in particular, uh, I would recommend somebody actually enter into it. And if you enter in along with Bilbo, allow yourself to accompany him, to peer over his shoulder from the very beginning uh, through to the end, you'll find that you yourself are undergoing a transformation because it's not just a book. It's not just a, it's not just a story in the way we tend to approach stories in the you know, sort of in the modern industrial West that is as, yeah. um, as a lower form of film or something like that, of, of, of cheap summer, summer blockbuster. But that it's, it is a different kind of thing, um, that it's, it's actually meant to be, and I, and I would make the case elsewhere at some other time in another conversation, that the, the, the genesis of books themselves is, was actually, um, to use the word psychotherapeutic or sort of mytho, mythotherapeutic uh, in, in terms of the way that they're meant to be used. Uh, is not merely something to be to be read as something outside of myself, but rather something I enter that enters into me, and that and thus I enter into. And I think the Hobbit is is just such a story of transformation in that way. Okay, that's very good, and I, I I'll have to probe that other idea at a future date. Um, given that, and I agree with what you just said, I think that my the the position I hold is that all art is in some way transformative. It it has it mm -hmm. acts anagogical um, catalyst. And by anagogy, I mean self-reflection. If the goal in life is not to acquire tons of money or go material goods, but rather to understand who you are in the universe, if that's the goal, then we have to have these tools to spark that movement forward so we don't just sit there mm -hmm. atrophy. So it's really, I guess you could look at it as sort of a, a, a spiritual catalyst, a spiritual converter, where it changes you as a human being, as you said. Yeah, yeah. You read the work and you're suddenly like, oh, that's me, that's, I've been through that, I understand that. I also think it gives a language for the experience that we have had or we will have. And yeah. one of the things I can imagine is to go through life and have no language for the thing that you just, you just experienced. There's a great story by Ambrose Bierce, I think it's called Chickamauga, where the young, the, the little boy has sees all this horrible stuff going on and finally gets back to his own house and his house is burned down and his mother's killed in the civil war. And mm -hmm. he's there, but he can't scream. He has no voice. He's a mute. And you only find that out at the end of the story. The point being is that if you do go through some horrendous thing and you have no way of talking about it, you have no language, you're just suffering blindly like a worm, you know, you yeah. like during this horrendous thing but you have no way of talking about it. So I think that, that it gives us a language for things. That is, and that is supremely important and something that's very, very dear to my heart, very, very strong in my, very powerful in my immediate experience is the, the real deepening realization uh, as an immigrant, I, I've, you know, I've moved to Italy from, from the United States. And as an immigrant, the experience of not having words for something and not just to express myself, 
but even to, to have a name for whatever that kind of animal is that's that's flitting about in the trees that I that's the limits of my world I can ex, I can see it I can experience it in a very my experience of things without having the words for them is has been more superficial than the experience of things for which I have the words. How fascinating. Let alone fascinating. being able to express yourself. Yeah. And it's harder to hold on to. It's harder to remember, to engage with, to enter into. But if I know that that this particular thing has this name, uh, I mean, it, also I have to give it a name of, of, it, of my own for it. But without that, now, then, then we have a relationship, right? And yes. so I can find out the name for a thing and a place for that matter. And now there's there's a rapprochement between me and the thing which is me and my entire environment and also then between you and an audience of other humans too which allows absolutely i was experiencing this uh with trying to talk to young people about movies and and they haven't seen movies and they don't know movies and so this you can't talk to them about it because they have no language to talk about it they've never seen things like battleship potemkin or mm -hmm. uh land luke or anything like that so they can't talk about that yeah. Um, and it's really, it's, it's, it's a connection between you and the world, connection with yourself, a connection with other human beings. If you don't share that language, you're kind of in this little prison house. You know, you're yeah. it, what, may I say, you're somewhat in a hole in the ground, right? <laughs> yeah, you, you may say that, right? And that's... Because <laughs> I think that, that that's... How to, how to frame this... I think a lot of what goes on in the novel of the, of the Hobbit is about exactly that, right there. Yeah. We just right. It's, it's it. Because the problem of Bilbo at the very beginning is not that he's chubby. It's not that he smokes too much. It's not that he's in a heterosexual male normative world. The problem is he's he's totally alone, and not much yeah. is made. But but the very opening shows he's totally alone. He lives in his hole. He's comfortable. He's satisfied. He's got everything he possibly needs, but there's no one else around. No one else around. Right. It's a bright day, so you don't think that's bad. But where are the other hobbits? Yeah. Where's Bilbo? You know, where are all the little Bilbo Bagginses running around? There's nobody right. else there. He's totally isolated. He's up on a hill. Mm -hmm. and one can make the argument, and I have made the argument, so I know I am one. One can make the argument that to a certain degree, he has the potential for becoming a dragon at the very start of the story. Say more to that. The dragon is, in Western culture, and certainly in the mind of Tolkien, the dragon is the quintessential example of isolated loneliness. And he, he goes back to Beowulf in this, where Grendel and Grendel's dam are like dragonish characters. And there's a dragon at the end. There's a good dragon at the end, yeah. Dragon lives alone, it uh, is violent, it has a horde with it, it lives in the ground, so it's kind of like in a tomb. It's inhuman, it's cold, it's scaly. Uh, it breathes fire, which is the element of intellect, but it breathes at randomly, so it just melts everything. So, so like the, the guy that goes off on a rant or a tirade, you know, in the comment section. Um, the, dragon, <laughs> the dragon is essentially a twisted being. It's a being that is isolated and alone and twisted. And there's yeah. something terrible about a dragon, uh, and obviously lives alone. It, dragons don't associate with one another either. They fight with each other and, and um, create their territory. You know that don't come right. into my all. So what we see at the beginning of the story is we see well. It opens. You know, um, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit, 
uh, not a, a nasty uh, wet hole nor a dry sandy hole, but a hole that was comfortable because that's you no know, right. That's where he is. He's comfortable, and then it describes his rooms and his closets and his pantries, and you know he has tons of stuff. So there's that treasure hoard. Yeah, and he's living on top of a hill, which is kind of like a mountain. And what does he do on a bright sunny morning after he's cleaned up the dishes? He goes out and he smokes a pipe, which is the fire coming out of the dragon's mouth. Fumes coming forth from him. Yeah. So at the beginning, he's, he's kind of an innocuous dragon. He's like Puff the Magic Dragon at the beginning, you know? Um, he's a, so he's, he's a very bourgeois dragon. A bourgeois dragon. <laughs> I like that. Yes. Bilbo, the bourgeois dragon. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is comic. And I think he intends it to yeah. be comic at the beginning. So we, we, on the one hand, so we find it enjoyable, but also so we don't notice what the crisis of the novel Because the crisis of the novel is if you stay that way, you're in a bad spot. You know, you're going to have a bad Even time. Even though it, yeah, because you're not, it's, which sounds to me like that's actually a very dangerous place to be because if you're a villain, you know you're a villain. The other people know you're a villain. You're a bad guy. If you're just a comfortable guy, we feel like that's not so bad. In fact, that's that's kind of the aim of a lot of people's lives is to get to that Comfort. 50 year old Bilbo Baggins status. And now yeah. you're good. Yeah. What you're yeah. saying is that that's actually at a deeper level. You're you're just at early dragon stage. Yeah. And I think we've really not, you know, not to draw on recent history, but I think we've seen a lot of that in, in recent era where people are, you know, we're comfortable enough and we can stay isolated in our homes. We don't have to go out. But after a while, you start clawing the walls. You know, you're like Charlotte Perkins with the yellow wallpaper. Yeah, just going to you peeling apart the yellow wallpaper. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's like you almost go demented. Um, it's not a good state to be in. And even though you can buy that, you know, $11 bottle of mustard down at Sam's Club that you've been craving for so long and, sit in front of the tube and watch the Super Bowl game. Is that enough? I mean, really? Is that really enough for human life? Is human life only just to sit and sit and eat and eat, as Shakespeare writes? Because it seems to me there's something more. You know, and I think Tolkien was saying there's something more than this. Um, that self-satisfaction, that spherical state that Bilbo was in at the beginning. He doesn't know that he's suffering. And yet, right. and yet yes. I think he right. is. Like Kierkegaard's man who's who's suffering, you know, lives of quiet desperate quiet despair, you know, unbeknownst themselves. Right. Right. We certainly see that that is the case in The Lord of the Rings later on when it says that Bilbo hasn't, he wasn't that he was young, just that he was well preserved. The ring right. that he later on kind of stretches out that condition and elongates yeah. it to see it better. He's not happy he's not prosperous again there's still no mrs baggins so whatever yeah. he, hobbit and i do think he does conquer this in the hobbit it it doesn't go away and the ring is the problem the ring stretches it out later on so you see it and so it becomes very stark there but here it's it's not even stark because it's charming you know he makes cakes in the morning uh he's right. kind of a cute little guy um <laughs> don't see that there's anything wrong in the situation right um, he's all prim and proper and everything is just right but yeah. that's precisely what flusters him. like that's gandalf comes in totally yeah. unexpected and shatters his world shakes him up 
to the point where he's 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 agitated psychologically. He's 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 sort of in a in a my, mild state of trauma <laughs> that, that he's he's totally dysregulated. Yes, Gandalf has just gotten him to invite him to tea, <laughs> and he's just you know. No, thank you. Go away. No adventures. Thank you very much. Come Wednesday. We'll have tea. Very good. And then slams the door, you know. <laughs> yes. And he's all worked up. He's tried to, he's, you know, he's, he's had this confrontation. So when it's, when things get out a little bit out of their perfect order, he actually gets quite, quite off, quite put Which off. Is, by this. That's a real indicator. And I don't think much is made of this when people read it the first time, but it says uh, in the opening, it says he liked visitors and then it goes on to something else. But then when the dwarves show up, yeah, he, he likes right. them on his own. He, he likes it when he knows them ahead of time. Yeah, and invites them himself. When he yeah. controls the whole thing, and and that is a huge element. You know, I, I mentioned in our our free video session, I mentioned that <laughs> Guardini makes a really interesting point yeah. in the modern world, where he says that when that old world of the medieval realm collapses, the only thing you're really left with is the acquisition of power or control. Yeah. And I think he's on. I think, you know, we're seeing so much of that right now that Absolutely. the of power is what we default to when we lose sight of what we really should be about. So if we're going to frame, like, what's the, what's the problem with Bilbo? What's the big deal with Bilbo? I think we could kind of put it in those terms. If he doesn't find a way to change from this bourgeois dragonishness, mm -hmm. he fall into eventually this idea that of acquiring power. He already has right. a, the richest bag, richest uh, hobbit and hobbiton, you know, and, which is like right. being famous in Poland or something, you know. Uh, <laughs> he, he already doesn't like visitors. He already controls everything in his house. But, but there is no, there's no fruitfulness to Bilbo. There's no fame. That's exactly oh. right. He becomes like that, the, the rich man or, uh, you know, the rich man of the gospel who says, you know, he's abundant harvest. And he's got all these things. Great. I can tear down my barns and fill up new ones because I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many things. Let's eat, drink and be merry. We don't need to work anymore. Um, and then, then obviously the, he dies. And the, the, in, in that, in that parable, the angel comes, you know, the angel comes to him at the night and says, fool tonight, this night, your soul will be required of you. And these things that you've, and these things that you've built up, whose will they be yeah. indicating this man has no posterity. This man has no children, no inheritance. Yeah. Wait, wait, what are you going to donate it to a library, buddy? I mean, come on. It, you're right. <laughs> it's like there's nothing there. And, and that is a real, it's a serious critique, too, of the ancient world, where the ancient world used to talk about how one of the greatest things you could do is to make a legacy. You know, Arete was a big deal for a guy, and he would create something. People would remember him for years, which mm -hmm. leads kind of to the to Ozymandias, you know. Look on my yeah. works, you powerful in despair. Because, yeah, <laughs> not yeah. a lot there when there's nothing there. So yeah. you had mentioned earlier about the maps, too. How do you mm – -hmm. we don't get maps aside from the um, the Dwarvish map in the – Right. We don't get maps besides the Dwarvish map in this book. Right. By the way, there I'm not geeking out on you. This is not uh, uh, geek power here. I, I was intentionally – you had asked me about stuff, showing off stuff. Uh -huh. I did I show off stuff like showing my geek credits or anything. I just want to show people what's available. So you yeah. have Hobbit. I have Gold yes. Hobbit. I'm higher you have ranked. A gold Hobbit. Oh. I'm higher ranked. That's higher ranked. <laughs> no, no, Green <laughs> Hobbit is what I grew up with. That was the home that I, you know, what you have yeah. there. 
I can't find mine right. now. It's tragic. But um, the, the old Hobbit is the you know this. Is oh the wow. Day. We're coming up now, and I realize this. We're coming up on the hundredth anniversary of the Hobbit. That is, think about that for a minute. 30, 37 will be uh, will be the hundredth anniversary. I think is that. Yeah, is that right? Oh, sweet. Wonders. Yeah, 2037 will be the hundredth anniversary. So we're we're coming close. Wow. So, but back to the beginning. You know, we don't get in this book that extensive map that Lord of the Rings has. We have right. the the dwarvish map, which is, mm -hmm. is quite as uh, detailed as we see later on. So here's a here's an early version of that, you know, with fingers. Right. So if we take the two maps together, how did how did they contribute to this theme that we're talking about, about dragonishness and that need to awaken to other things? How, how do you think they contribute? The, the maps, the two maps. I'm, I'm sorry, I missed what the... The, the map in The Hobbit and then the map mm -hmm. in the... You know, Tolkien didn't... <sighs> Plate tectonics. The Lord of the Rings map. Yeah. 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 Right. Okay. Plate tectonics right, right. is not a thing yet. And so Tolkien mm -hmm. was not making some sort of scientific world on which to place his characters. This is far more, I think, a mythological world he's creating. Mm -hmm. So consequently, they would fit into whatever theme he was developing in the book. If the theme right. we're talking about need to get away from bourgeois dragonishness, mm -hmm. how how do the maps contribute to that or do they contribute to it or is there some other significance they they contribute profoundly to that but it's a, and I keep the page keeps skipping me here as I'm, actually that's a the well before the we're given another map we are in the published work the you know those who have a privileged edition like like ours but you have this this side view map of yeah. hobbiton right yeah. And for those out in Radio Land who can't see this, um, that is the, uh, the he's, there's the, the, the painting is essentially a watercolor looking kind of thing. Um, I'm no art expert to say what the medium was, but uh, it's that view from across the water, looking up the hill, and you see the mill in the in the foreground. But you've got like you like you mentioned this very you know the the dragonish sort of situation yeah. of where Bilbo is. He's up atop the hill outside where the town is down by the water not unlike as we see later you've got lake town and you've got um uh, the town of dale also right there right against the water where the dragon is up the hill i mean there's certainly parallels there but you know these these maps that we have here rather i should say the map in the hobbit has essentially you know it has the dragon at at the forehand you've got the hobbit over here and this is the map clearly shows a journey from here to there and back again, hence Bilbo's own title for his for this book is There and Back Again, A Hobbit's Holiday. Nice. Um, but there's a lot of change that happens in between there. And I think it's it's significant, honestly, from my point of view, that the map is only encountered a little bit later into the first, in, in, into the chapter, a little bit later into the chapter. Mm. Uh, and that is, it's the ground has to be prepared for it. Because Bilbo, as we're told at that point, is very fond of maps. He's got he's got a map in his hallway, in fact, where he you know, notes all his routes right. around the Shire. He loves to go and take yeah. walks in the Shire, yeah. which shows that there's something a bit in love with the wilds. Somewhere deep down inside of him, there's a wildness that's outside of this, this bourgeois dragon 
this yeah, tame he's, he's got a lot of it he's really assumed yeah he's got a wandering yeah. spirit it reminds me of that augustine quotation you know that lord you made our hearts for you and our hearts are restless until they find mm-hmm. the rest it's kind of like that he's he's not like the other hobbits who just sit around on their porch waving at cars as they go by <laughs> <laughs> right uh-huh. and i think i think the real awakening starts and it's it's interesting as you said um gosh what was it you 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 were talking with about guardini and the guardini's point of view um and i think there's something very guardinian in the beginning here where where the point you know the narrative beginning not the 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 sort of pre-narrative matter of laying out what do we mean by a hobbit what is a hobbit who is this baggins was his family history quick which is like you might encounter in a small town you learn more about the person's um, you know, his mother and father and whose families they're from before you even get to the point of what they're doing today, you know, you're being introduced to somebody, which is a good way of situating him, which is not, I mean, it's, it's sort of situating him on the social map first. Here's where he is. We're given a lot of detail at the beginning of the chapter, so we know Bilbo's position in the world. That's and true. I think what the map does, what a map does in general, is it, it gives us a place in the world. And if it's a map of something bigger than what we've seen before or a map of somewhere else, it expands our world. But here, he's not even able to see who it is, is on his front step, who's standing right in front of him. Gandalf shows up and he says, good morning. And he meant it, it says. The text says, and he meant it. Gandalf's immediate question is to him, what do you mean? But whatever it is that he means, he means it. And we're, we're immediately introduced to this, this again, as, a, as you might expect from the professor of philology. Um, you know, this, 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 first, we're talking about the meaning of things before we can talk about the things. What do we mean by these things? His, he himself has just written all of this. Mm-hmm. But his name, he doesn't, Bilbo doesn't have the eyes to see who this is that's in front of him. Right, he doesn't have the eyes to see. He should recognize him. Gandalf knows he should recognize him. That's why he says, "You know, you do know my name, though you don't remember that I belong to it." Right, right. Which puts the the thing with the authority, the thing with agency, is the name. And so there's something very powerful to being named, to having a particular name. And he says, "You know, Gandalf means, you know, I'm Gandalf, and Gandalf means me." Which is similar to what we see, of course, in later on in the in the Lord of the Rings, which is a conversation to have next year at this time. You know, we finally get around to to that. And Tom Bombadil and he's you know Frodo oh. asked Tom Bombadil, who is Tom Bombadil, yeah. and Goldberry just says he is. Yes, right. I might yeah, I'm Tom Bombadil. It's my name. It's the the only answer. We are one with our name. But there's something here that's an identity that's being woven. And he's Gandalf. Wait, and he remembers something, and we're told that. You know, by which we, you know, he remembers, oh, you did all these wonderful fireworks and all of this. And the fireworks he describes as looking like different kinds of garden flowers. And Tolkien tells us that, by which you can tell that Bilbo wasn't quite so prosaic as he liked to think. And also that he was very fond of flowers. Mm. But there's a beginning of an awakening here in the encounter with somebody else who's come crashing in on your world and introduced a very disturbing proposition for you that you should come on an adventure. Yeah, and not just any somebody, too. And that, re- really good points, Cameron. Um, not just any somebody. This is an angel, right? Yeah, right. We don't learn that until a little later on. Uh, probably, I think it's in Lord of the Rings that we begin to get it. Really into Lord of the Rings, yeah. yeah. But he's an angel. And, he's, and it's funny, there's a comic element there because Gandalf, when he comes to him, 
he tells him something that makes him tremulous and he goes back into his house and has to have a biscuit so right. Gandalf, like as a piglet he's gonna bring himself down a little bit yeah right exactly uh yeah boost his endorphins um gandalf ends up telling him something that makes him fearful and the opening mm-hmm. of any you're not right they say that all the time fear not right. because anytime he's an angel appears, something is going to happen. <laughs> you know, the angel isn't like there to order hot, <laughs> you know, and so right. um, Gandalf appearing, something's going to happen, even if you go back inside and shut the door. So he's having an angelic visitation at the beginning. I, I do like, see, I do like some of the things that Joseph Campbell says, and I like his outlining of the hero's journey and all this, and the catalyst mm-hmm. comes to the messenger that comes to spark the hero's journey. But one thing that Cam- Campbell doesn't seem to emphasize is that you do have moments where you have a visitation that's an angelic visitation. Yeah. And, and if you do have them, they're terrifying. And it means you really have to change. This isn't just some suggestion. It's not like the tense. Exactly. So Gandalf coming really becomes the start of the hero's journey for the story, but he's also more... He's the, the, the divine breaking into the, the mundane world, the bourgeois world. As well. and, he, yeah. and he breaks that, that otherwise that continuous static cycle that Bilbo is in, where he's been living now, right. the, the man under the hill, so to speak, for years and years and years. Yeah. yeah. I really liked your, your point, too, about uh, placing him in the Hobbit world as the son of Bongo and the... the um, son of belladonna took that yeah. he he is part of a family he's fixed he's in a family tree which is another kind of map mm-hmm. he himself is known in the community everybody knows him they put him in a box he's in baggins you could know what a baggins thinks about something without yeah. the bother of having to ask yeah without having to ask but he's about to break out of all that and do really weird yeah. things by, yeah. by, by uh, hobbit standards and so again there's this atrophy going on and the atrophy has to be cured by him going on this adventure. So all the stuff that he doesn't like about the dwarves and the, the um, walking, uh, sleeping in the rain and visiting with trolls and all this, all that is there in order to cure this problem that you had before, which is even worse than getting captured by orcs or even worse than having mm-hmm. to fix uh, spiders in the forest. Um, I also really, if I can go back to it for just a minute, I liked your point yeah. too. And his walks, his, his, um, walks around the land when i was a kid we used to vacation in um, uh, kentucky and we would go to natural bridge state park in kentucky, yeah. walk around in the forest and that's really great but they always had these signs you know here's the trail for such and such trail and here's the trail for blue trail you know and, mm-hmm. and all that would be mapped out and so when you read these signs you'd think oh i know exactly where i'm going i'm going to be on the trail everything's going to be nice and ordered and under my control and uh it turns out it isn't that way because when you actually go out in the forest, there is no actual blue like line to follow necessarily. It's not like Jurassic mm-hmm. Park where you just stay in the Jeep and just like <laughs> cruise through. <laughs> right. um, the the um, Pirates of the Caribbean do get off the ride and eat you. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that, that's kind of, again, going back to that idea of power. There seems to be a natural thing in human beings where we want to, we want to control. Right. Speaking of man, men especially, we want to control. We want to have things in order, things set in place. And, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with it, but it may be that that's part of the, the trap that he, that Tolkien is addressing as well. 
is the desire to control everything. The yeah. desire to uh, have everything in its place and fixed. And then once it's there, nobody should mess with my stuff. Don't mess with my crap, man. And because, of course, we see that in Lord of the Rings, right? That's the mm-hmm. big guy. That's, that's Sauron himself. He's the, he's yeah. the Lord power that wants to control everything and when he does control everything everything becomes kind of a wasteland so if you yeah. can take the Hobbit novel and project it out into that lord world the lord of the rings world you see that what he's developing here in the hobbit is already this kernel of an idea that takes off when we get to that trilogy later on yeah um and it's important that in order to become something different than what you are you have to do something radical there's an angelic yeah. visitation. Somebody has come crashing into your world, and Bilbo has a choice. And if we're reading deeply, we're following along. We're we're right there with Bilbo. Yeah. We have a choice. We can follow him, or we can not. We can we yeah. can we can go or not. Yes. And he struggles. I, he he waffles, dithers, but. I think this is why uh, W. H. Autumn was so praiseworthy of the book. You know, he's famous for having written that there are two people in the world, those who haven't read Tolkien and those who uh, have yet to. Because I think I think Auden saw that Tolkien's art, his novel creation, spoke to a universal experience of humanity. Yeah. Yeah. And a problem of humanity, which I think is probably the problem of power, of control. Um, and at the beginning, you have a little guy who's comic, but he is definitely on the possible road to becoming this Sauron character, this dragon character, or smog character, as the case may be. Yeah. Question two, because I've always wondered this. When Gandalf says, I, I am me, you know, Gandalf mm-hmm. means, I certainly agree with the idea that name means person, you know, and the name mm-hmm. and person united. But there's also the problem that Gandalf, that, 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 Tolkien, Gandalf, that Tolkien was a philologist and he drew those names, Gandalf and the dwarves, he drew them from the, I think it was the Poetic Ada, not the prose one, I think it was the Poetic Ada, this list okay. of names that goes on in the Poetic Ada. And every dwarvish name has a meaning in English. In fact, well, names all yeah. have. So, you know, right. we, uh, your average Joe, your average bill your average peter but we don't realize what we're saying is you know your average strong head your average dreamer your average rock we don't hear that because we hear just the name so when we hear Gandalf, we don't hear the translation which is Mm -hmm. uh, which what i have in front of me anyway is magic elf or wolf elf wand elf Mm. Gandalf, one of the dwarves Mm. wand elf yeah is the magic elf, the wolf elf. Yeah. How is that? Does that have any bearing on his statement that Gandalf means me? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's got to. And then certainly, you know, in the next, in, in the Lord of the Rings, is the, as the universe sort of develops behind, we, we're told other names that he has as well. Yes. Um, and that certainly, I think, works back. It's not illegitimate to say in a piece of mythology, which is what this is, that that works backwards too to, to influence how we understand that here because it's a further expo- explication of it. But yeah, I mean, if he's you know a wolf figure, that is a figure that's usually the locus of some sort of transformation, um, comes in, is frightful. It's something that's wild, right? Not necessarily evil, but wild. I mean, the, there's the wolf in the, um, what's that Russian tale about the golden bird or the firebird? Right? Yeah, the fiber, right. the wolf is a helper figure, but is not tame. He's not safe. 
Um, and and so there's something there that yeah, this 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 wolf elf or this uh, what did you say the magic elf? It's it it further emphasized the notion that he's a angelic visitor. He is something from outside the world. He's a mystic figure who's coming in to to waken something. Right? He's a power, uh, mm. and you know in the in the biblical sense of the word as some sort of creature one of the powers of the heavens right that we tamely call angel um, yeah to to waken bilbo out of his slumber yeah um, and and to the names thing i was just quick looking up there's uh there's a great quote from from the never-ending story uh, which is another great piece of literature that that to to read in conjunction with this to understand how you should get to enter into it but uh but the quote from the story and that's the never-ending story by by Mikhail Ende. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, very very popular book back uh, 20, 30 years ago. But uh, mm. highly recommended for you. But the quote is that only the right name gives things and beings the, their reality. A wrong name makes everything unreal. That's what lies do. So the right name gives things and beings their reality, but the wrong name makes them unbe very dear that's i think that's intricately woven in with this moment in the story precisely because as his hobbit hole was described it has nasturtian flowers coming down now why are the nasturtians important yeah right why do we care about nasturtians why should we the reader not just in the story because there's a whole story there's a whole drama in the production and publication of this book around the name of a thing tolkien mm -hmm. went to fisticuffs with his with his editor over this, because his editor corrected Nasturtians. And if you, you go to any garden center today, at least in, in the Anglophone America, and you get the seeds for this kind of flower, you want to buy these potted flowers, you will see they are named nasturtiums with an I-U-M-S. Wow. But, but, but the real name is nasturtian with an I-A-N-S. Wow. And nasturtians are the things that are... Um, you know, they've got the bright orange flowers, kind of a trumpet shape. You know, it's these things, and they've got a heart-shaped leaf. And these are the things that you would plant, uh, you know, above the hobbit hole, and they would kind of dangle down around the windows, something like this. And, and but Tolkien was very adamant that the correct term is nasturtian, not nasturtium. Why? And because, <laughs> because only the right name gives things their reality, the wrong name makes them unreal. Because a nasturtium, it's not just a, a change in pronunciation. But a nasturtium is literally a different kind of plant. That's cress. Mm -hmm. So Tolkien actually went so far. He's like, I'm pretty, I mean, you know, he's a full, he's an English philology guy. He, should, he knows words, right? But he goes and he talks to the gardener. And he says, this, you know, this, this here, nasturtium, nasturtium. And the gardener says, nasturtium? No, that's cress. This here's a nasturtium. Wow. Nasturtium is the Latin name for a certain kind of cress. They might be vaguely related to each other, somewhat. But they're very different plants. So the one is the kind of, um, you know, it's not say watercress, but you know, it's an upland crest of some sort, and it's not the same kind of plant. It's not the garden flower. Incidentally, also edible. These flowers are, they think, really good on salads, really good on a pizza, for that matter. But without getting too far afield here, um, <laughs> does it put anything on pizza in Italy here except pineapples? That's evidently a no-no. But flowers, potatoes, roots, you name it, it can go on a pizza. But but that's important. So sort of meta outside of the text, the structure of this piece of literature itself, we know that the sort of the, the meta story around the production of this book, that's a thing that Tolkien feels very strongly about, is wow. the right names for things. And, and, and again, 
he's a stickler for detail, Tolkien was. Yeah. Uh, he was he this sort of thing is a classic example of what I'm talking about, where he would go and talk to the gardener, for goodness sake, he would go and look things up. And he was mm-hmm. very of symbolism of uh, ancient world symbolism and Norse symbolism. And so he not only is he looking for the right spelling of the word, but he's for the right flower because flowers represent things. You know, the, yeah. the flowers have meaning in themselves. The nasturtiums mm-hmm. are um, a victory or success is what they what they are famous for being connected to. They're a golden mm-hmm. golden or orange flower. Um, mm-hmm. I think five five petals. I want to say so. Single foils. Oh, yes, so they have a numerical symbolism there. They've mm-hmm. got a color symbolism there. They've got a time of year that they grow symbolism there. They have a historical yeah. ideas symbolism. So in that one little symbol, Tolkien has packed incredible meaning that Bilbo has essentially surrounded himself with the medals of past victories, so to speak. His whole uh, entrance into his home is surrounded yeah. by sort of self-congratulatory, you know, I'm the conqueror. I'm the Look at me. I'm, I'm fat. I've got uh, pipe tobacco and food and a home. Look how good I am. Aren't I good? Yes. And very self-congratulatory, really. His, I, you know, you could say in the, if the, you look at the color of the flowers, like little medallions of gold and, and, and uh, orange, that that's his treasure trove right there. A happy little hobbit hole is his treasure trove. So, yeah. yeah. Gandalf comes into that and he says, okay, guess what? You're going to leave all this behind and <laughs> go away right. for an a period of time. Because, because when it's time to go, it's time to go. Yeah. And you may not come back alive. Right. Yes, and that's another, that's another good point right there. Is that when it's time to go, it's time to go. It, it, part of the trap of a materialist view is you get your whole world in order and everything's perfect and all this. And like in the parable you mentioned, then you have a cardiac arrest. And what, what the hell mm-hmm. good does all that do you, you know? What is all that stickler to detail, making sure everything's in its right place and you've got the best dishwasher and refrigerator? What does all that mean when suddenly you're struck down? Um, right. and, and that's why, if you want to put a philosophic twist on it, that's why this novel, like philosophy, is a preparation for death. Yeah. Because Bilbo doesn't go through this journey, then he doesn't have the strength to be able to face what he has to eventually face. And again, to project into the Lord of the Rings, what does he have to face? Well, on the one hand, he has to face the fact that he is an addict to the ring. There's that great yeah. scene in Rivendell where, where Frodo shows him the ring and he, he almost kills Frodo to get it right there in Rivendell. Yes. But he controls himself. Right. He, this, this is what that whole there and back again Hobbit's uh, uh, journey Holiday, how was holiday? That's that, that's what that was all for to prepare me so that I don't strike down the person I love in order to take the thing I'm addicted to. And then, of course, right. when he goes to the Grey Havens, to the Grey Havens, which symbolizes in a way like the Dormition of the Virgin Mary, it symbolizes a pleasant death, a peaceful death yeah. for him. And he's able to face it. He's able to say, I want this. I want to go on this journey. I don't, you know, I don't want to cling to life and all the nasturtiums around, nasturtiums around the door of my hobbit hole anyway, which is a huge deal. I mean, that's a big deal. So really it's this journey for Bilbo that makes him capable of doing any of that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I've always been struck along that line. I've always been struck how 
when Tolkien writes this map, creates this map, yeah. he creates a map of a Thror, which we see in the in the novel. But that just mm -hmm. begins there with the misty mountains on one side. Um, yes. Goes off to see where Lonely Mountain is. You see Mirkwood and all this. It doesn't show you where Hobbiton is. And he later commissioned somebody to do a map to his specifications, which yes. is what of the rings. And that one shows us that the Misty Mountains actually extend to the north and curl around uh, in the small foothills that begin really just outside of Hobbiton. And mm -hmm. so the hill where, where Bilbo lives is actually one of the first of these little foothills that curl around and eventually become those huge Misty Mountains. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And so that, that connection not only connects Bilbo directly to the Misty Mountains and then, of course, to Lonely Mountain, which is almost in the map as almost, uh, what was the term? It's equidistant from the Misty Mountains as his home is on either side. Yeah, of the I suppose. Yeah. If you look at it. But it also connects him down to the south where Mordor is because the mountains extend down into Gorgoth and the plains of Mordor mm -hmm. there. And as, as I pointed out to my students, is that that later map that he commissioned, under his specifications, this was not just, you know, go draw me a map. Right. Um, that map really represents a dragon image itself. The curling around from Hobbiton around to the north to the Iron Hills and mm. then down, that's, that's a shape of a dragon. It's the tail of a dragon. The backbone is the Misty Mountains. Um, Mordor is the mouth of the dragon. Eye of the dragon is oh, there. Oh, yeah. Rodruin is, and then you have even the neck of the dragon is where the dragon would sit, and of course that's Orthanc, that's where yeah. Alphon is. Right. So it's Tolkien was obviously thinking about that connection of dragon to to map to Bilbo, and and again, mm -hmm. there are moments where I like I start talking about this, and I'm like I have to stop. I'm like, my God, this guy's a genius. It's like you're looking at all these elements, and it's just how did he do this? Um, which means that, so just to, what you're describing of that, so what you're saying is that the map that Tolkien had done, drawn up, the, the, the whole Middle-earth map um, from Lord of the Rings, itself contains secrets that if you know what moon to look at it under, they come, they come to light. Right. That's right. Just like Thror's map <laughs> in the story contains secrets, right? It's not, it's, this is no ordinary map. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's perhaps even words yet written that we haven't seen because they were written under a different moon. Yes. Oh, one kind of indicates that. Yes, yes. But these and things contain, they are a story that can, yeah. can waken your world somehow. I will, you know, what you just said just gave me chills because what we talk about when we talk about uh, seeing things under a different moon, we're talking about when we see them at a different age in our life or we see them at a different age in world history or we see them because now we have access to something we didn't have access to before that's really what that metaphor means and so one classic example of this is the palantir in lord of the rings and we're i know we're getting ahead of ourselves but the palantir yeah. brings these dark spheres that you gaze into them and you can see long distances of things happening or things that will happen so that mm -hmm. you have perspective on the world that other people don't have because you can see yeah. at a long distance right uh, Procol Harum, as the band used to be called, uh, <laughs> seeing things at a distance. And so that, yeah. that Palantir allows you this tremendous power and therefore control, apparent yes. control, because you can react. Right. But in Lord of the Rings, of course, they've been captured and corrupted and twisted. So anything you see is always is conditioned by those that want to 
show you something and not show you something else or show you something in a certain light with a certain it's like language. looking something up on the internet it's like looking something up on google or on facebook <laughs> yeah it shows no you things but, but the, my point is that tolkien wrote about those bloody things in the 40s and 50s yeah you know, that's that's 30 years 40 years before the internet was even a, a glint in some uh engineer's eye okay right so so talk about moon letters that that whole thing is is moon letters it's like a prophetic thing this is where we're headed we're gonna get yeah. it we're gonna get this thing eventually it's not gonna be nice you know it's gonna twist the uh, the warden of of the city into something very dark um, right. yeah well dang okay that's that was a uh, you know tangent that it go up <laughs> into the future yeah um, but uh, but here we are with the maps and the maps expand the world and yeah. now what happens when Bilbo encounters this? He's, somebody breaks into his world. There's a real encounter. Then these yeah. dwarves start showing up on his front step. They all pop in and he sits there and says, what, did you get a group raid or something? And they all kind yeah. of flood in. And then, and then there they are. Yeah. And what, what, what is happening to Bilbo when this starts, when this, when this is all going on? He's, he's sort of the, he's sort of the servant. He's sort of like say, serving them tea and cakes and, coffee and beer and tea and all this and 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 watching as his house is turned upside down turned into disarray uh, right. and and it's it's quite disturbing to him but he he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't stop i mean there's no point in there where he just says okay doris get the hell out get off my lawn he doesn't do that he he kind of he's taken aback by it i think and 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 on his heels so finally when they settle down and they begin talking business they say you know, he says, do you want some light, right? And they say, no, we mm -hmm. like it, you know, dark, for dark things or dark business. And they start right. talking and are singing about it as the case may be. And um, then they, they pull out the map, right? Talk, uh, mm -hmm. Again, all time for the map. They pull out the map, they look at the map and Bilbo gets all excited because he loves maps. And that's where they say, we're on this journey to get gold back from the dragon and you're coming with us. That's the big reveal, right? right. You're the burglar. And there's a scene in there which I absolutely loved. And I haven't seen the movie, so just bear with me because I can't say they did it poorly in the movie, but they probably did. I know they did in the Rankin-Bass version. When they say, <laughs> when they say um, you know, you're the burglar and we will pay for your funeral expenses, he lets out this shriek and he passes out. Right, right. And I love that scene. They carry him into another room and they ply him with biscuits in order to wake him up. But uh, first off, part two, I love the second part too, which gets you a minute. Yeah. That part I love because first off, it, if you've ever heard, the shriek is tremendous. And the fainting, I think, is redolent of Dante and his experience there in yes. Elmer, various places. Because he's just yeah. this, this, this is tremendous. No, this, I, I, this is not what I wanted, Lord. But the shriek is interesting because... Um, if you've ever heard a rabbit caught by a cat, they yeah. shriek, Billy Ho. It's terrifying. I mean, and it's a, it's a natural reaction right. in order to drive away predators, but it's also just tremendous, like something out of hell. And yeah. that's I envision with Bilbo, which is apropos, because the Bilbo character is a twofold character. He's Took and Baggins. Yeah. Took on the hand is the warrior adventurer going out in the world, checking stuff out and getting treasure. 
Baggins is the self, I think that's right. And Baggins is a self congratulatory mm -hmm. sort of ordinary average hobbit. Yeah. Type. Yeah. So very comfortable, very predictable. Uh, and so in that sense, he's a unity of these two, which I mm -hmm. think is a great parallel for what a human being is. But he's, therefore, he's a parallel between two mythical figures. You know, we talked about Gandalf as a mythical wolf figure. Yeah. Bill, mythical rabbit dragon combination, which is kind of like, you know, if a dragon right. makes rabbits, but, you know, we don't necessarily have to go there. This is, this is good. He's a, he is a rabbit because he's, what, they even give that, they give the description. That's, that's yes. put in here. I don't remember where, oh, with the eagles, he's described yes. like a rabbit. Yes, yes, he's yes, yes. But here he's described like a dragon. Yep. Here's just a dragon in a pinch. I know he no, seems it, a bit jumpy. <laughs> More like a grocer than a dragon, they say, you know. Right. Uh, yeah. But even in the description of the opening that you talked about, you know, what is a hobbit, where uh, Tolkien goes to explain that, he describes them as being round in the middle and furry-footed, and they don't wear shoes. That's right. So there's right. And they live in a warren. Yeah, it's a warren, right. It's like Watership Down by Douglas Adams, or uh, uh, Richard Adams, Douglas Adams, different. Okay. Um, different but, he, you know, he lives the life of a comfortable rabbit. He is in his little yeah. burrow. He's got his old rabbit colony around him. He's got the furry mm -hmm. feet. Uh, he's got tons of food. And he's kind of timid in a way. And that's his yeah. back. That's his bag inside. Yeah. So when, when he shrieks, that's that's a rabbit reaction, you know. It's a rabbit in its death throat, yeah. feel, right? I mean, that's it's seized by the throat by yeah. a wolf, for instance. Yeah, well, as an example. Um you know, we have coyotes, and you hear the coyotes out here, and they make this yipping sound. But then when they catch something like a rabbit, it's like, yip, yip, yip. <laughs> I'm locking my door and staying inside. <laughs> That's kind of like what happens, I think, with the Bilbo character. <laughs> it's caught by the well, wolves or dwarves. And yeah. he's, he shrieks, he freaks out, and then faints. But then there's that second part, which I find really interesting, because then the Turkish side kind of comes alive. As you said, wake up. Yeah, the Baggins dies, the Turk comes alive, because you, he hears that comment by, I don't forget who it is, Balin maybe, or Dwalin, who says he seems more like a green grocer than a, than a dragon. And he gets all like, right. well, I'm going to go in there and show them I'm no green grocer, you know? Yeah, right. That's, his foot into the trap or his hand in the honey jar or whatever it is because he right. know those dwarves <laughs> and he can't get out of it once he makes that commitment um, which is tremendous right tremendous yeah but the courage to do that the thumotic element as the greeks called it you know calling up of that middle thumos thing is really what ends up being the salvific character for him because he rises to yeah. a chance and he he comes back into for whatever reasons, he comes back into human society or dwarvish society and takes yeah. on this, this journey that's going to change him. Um, and I think that, again, is a, is a big element of this story as a anagogical work. Artwork is supposed to be challenging to us. If it's not challenging, it's kitsch. You know, that's, right. that's, that's what... Um, it was a great philosopher who just died. Son lost his name. The um, intelligent person's guide to the modern world, and oh, I can see, I him can on see a, his face, but I can't remember his name. <laughs> he talks about kitsch all the time. He says that kitsch is something which is a palliative. It just confirms all our preconceived notions, 
and it makes us feel nice and warm, but it's substanceless. There's nothing there really. Yeah. Where work itself is supposed to be something that challenges us that we look at it. We say, wow, I never thought about things before that way to evoke some it's emotional to response. Yeah. It's supposed to be in, in sort of Gordinian terms, like Ramana Gordini, more like a looking glass that you step through yeah. into another world. Yeah. Yeah. Look at, yeah. Right. Exactly. The, the Homeric um, comment that Homer is a, holds up a mirror to us. so We can see ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, that it is supposed to force you to look at who you are and where your weaknesses are, but also where your strengths are. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's little Bilbo suddenly realizing he's a rabbit shrieking. But then when he hears that comment, he, he has that Turkish side woken up in him and he responds to that too. Because there's a paradoxical, I think, realization that every human has to come to. Mm-hmm. That on the one hand, we are nothing we are worthless who are we in the universe we are like some not even a speck we're, we're less than that it's it's truly yeah. daunting truly daunting that in two generations most all of us will be forgotten people will not remember mm-hmm. us in, that yeah. most of us are frail and we are puny and we aren't really dynamic you know we um <laughs> we don't we don't respond well to trauma at all and that's one hand you know right. who are but then on the other hand, you have to realize paradoxically, you are everything. You are, you are the reason. Right. You know, you, you are the, 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 the thing. Uh, God so loved you that he gave his only son that you should, should be free. Um, that who, who am I, Lord, that you should visit me, right? And, and holding those two sides at the same time, I think, is, is difficult because we tend to go on the one, oh, I'm a worm, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a deity. But it's absolutely necessary because if we go all one way or all the other way, we end up being something monstrous. And this mm-hmm. is again novel showing us this, I think, over and over again. If we go to the the, the self-satisfied um, bag inside, we end up thinking I'm worthless. What am I? I'm a nothing. You know, I'm right. I'm I'm a little slimy creature living in a hole under the earth in a lake, right? Just like another one will meet. Yeah, exactly. But if you go the other route, which is I am tremendous, I'm the most important thing in all creation, nobody's better than I am, well, then you're the smog, you know, no one, I am power, my my claws are death, you know, Um, and neither way is really, that's not, that's not Not a good place to be, not a good place to be. So the book, the novel seems to me to be a, a great catalyst for waking a person up to whether you're a rabbit or a dragon or whether you're a dragon rabbit, which in a medieval world, by the way, is perfectly acceptable. You look at these manuscripts and you see like the kangaroo dragon thingies all over the place. And, uh, they, they had no problem with that paradoxical nature going on. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The important thing is to be more like a griffin and not like a chimera or a manticore. Yes. Right. There's different combinations put in the wrong order or disastrous, put in the right order or something right. magical and, and, and noble. Let me ask you something here to not switch gears entirely, but you know, he has the dwarves come mm-hmm. in and they, they all pile into his house. And most of the time people think of them as sort of a lump. They're they're not in they're just like, you know, ori dory, fori, gory, bori, tori, sorry, mori. You know, and people are like, they're just dwarves, just a bunch of dwarves. And that may be because as humans, we can't count beyond three, which I learned recently. 
hard time doing that. We're like one, two, three, four, five. Um, Isn't it how they essentially arrive into his house? The one, two, three, and then whatever yeah. the cluster comes in. You know, however, <laughs> Jennifer, I love that. And and if and if you don't think that's the case, then you you know you look at one person, it's one person. Two people, three people, three people. Looks maybe like four, I guess five. And then you start climbing up. You're like, it's a crowd. It's a mob. It's just a throng at this point. Throng. It's not, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for the rest of the throng. But um, if we don't lump them all together, what do we make of these dwarves? I mean, wh- what do we make of dwarvish power in general? And what and do, are they individuals at all? Or are they just a lot of singing twits that are really the same thing reduplicated over and over again? Well, they all come come in. They come crashing into Bilbo's world, initially one at a time, like like water trickling. That's water that's been long held back by a dam trickles first, trickles first, and then breaks through. Right? There's been enough eroded. Incidentally, um, you know, but they, they trickle through one by one, and they've they've paced. It's it's almost like they've paced themselves out ahead of time. Like this is planned so as not to uh, all get turned away at once. It's a strategy that we know Gandalf uses later on in the later story. On. With, the, <laughs> with the big, with the big Bilbo, right? With the big Bilbo, and and Bilbo, the charming is Bilbo still even then, halfway through the book, seems not to catch on that these, <laughs> you know, essentially was hoodwinked to the beginning, that yeah. that these guys were paced. You know, you yeah. go in one at a time, but then the rest, you know, they they bump in. Um, but no, I mean, I think there's there's definitely different personalities. I think that's. That's something that's hard to suss out in the first chapter, but I think later on we see, you know, as he becomes, you know, maybe that's just it. That's the genius of the writing is that to Bilbo now, they're just a throng of dwarves yeah. because he doesn't know them. He's not become one of them yet. But when he becomes one of them, he begins to learn their distinct personalities and has different relationship with different dwarves that reaches quite a, a climax uh, in, you know, in the, the, the besieging of the Lonely Mountain. That we see later on, so very, very diverse kinds of relationships with the different dwarves that he that he, he develops there. Yeah. But but they had they do have a power, they have a magic. And it doesn't seem to be individual. It seems that they work in tandem together to work this yeah. magic. There's well, a charming magic. They get these instruments out of out of nowhere, out of their little uh, out of yeah. their you know, these little Mary Poppins bags, all of a sudden, pff, here's a cello. Where have you been hiding that? And where'd you go with it afterwards? That's, that's yeah, the mystery. Again, going back to names, you know, we see them as just a continuation of this naming. You know, one one is named the same as all the rest, or something like that. But they do mm-hmm. seem to have different. Their names mean different things, and therefore they have different powers or different realms that they command or that they are um, governing over, so to speak. And I'm just I'm just going out randomly here because I called up yeah. the list of. You can find this stuff. Oh, on the, what are the names? It's gonna be, but just random stuff. Um, if we looked at like Feely, for instance, Feely is the one who flies, right? And mm-hmm. and he's of course his brother Keely. Keely means wedge, wedge. Mm-hmm. And you've got Bifur Bafur Bambur, which is a good combination, right? Uh, Bifur is the quaking one. He also represents the animal, the beaver, and. Um, You've got uh, Bifur Bafur, Bambur um, means the drummer or the swollen one. So all of them have names which, if they aren't in um, Swedish, I'm assuming it's Swedish, if they aren't in Swedish, 
you can see them as the names of angels or the names of even of, of the demons because the demons and angels have similar types of monikers mm-hmm. you know one who lurks uh the the lord of the light the um the the, the name of god or who is like god so the, yeah. they're translated like control over powers or control over auspices of things So really, like your analogy of the water pouring in is very apt, because what we're getting here is we're not just getting we're not just getting crazy singing doors coming in, you know, and romping everywhere. We're getting the powers of the earth pouring in suddenly to his little hobbit, flooding the hobbit hole. It's, uh, It's like he's suddenly encountering the possibility that there are powers out there greater than himself. Which he does have an affinity towards in terms of like they're the same height, you know, they kind of speak yeah. the same. He has a chookish side, but yet he has isolated himself so much in this little fortress of solitude that he doesn't recognize that maybe there's something beyond this world that he has to reckon with. The power yeah. of waking one or the power of the drummer. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I'll let you in a well, little stick. And what other artists were thinking about is that these powers are always governing over some auspice of human existence human life yes i think that's what the dwarves are they're they they are they represent governance over certain aspects of life that kind of suddenly pours in on bilbo as though blood coming in on him right house and then they're inviting him to come with him and be one of them um which does raise a question and i don't know if you know the answer to this i don't think i do where does that name Bilbo come from? What, did how did he develop that name? Do you know? I don't know. That is a great I, question. I know that he. I know that he intended to name him originally Bingo, which that that's guy right. Bingo, right? No, really glad. Yeah, but he changed it. And yeah. I, don't, I don't know where he gets that at all. And I'm just looking up on my quick source, which is Quackopedia, <laughs> right. and it doesn't really give a satisfactory. It doesn't just sound okay. No, I uh, wonder. That's interesting. And is it in some ways? I mean, we'll, we'll have to wait the final verdict of a little more thorough research to find out from the letters if he ever reveals that. But hmm. it could be. I mean, one hypothesis is if it essentially is is not doesn't have a specific reference, it perhaps has that in the same way that, um, you know, a character named Antrobus or any man might you know it's the, the point is that he's that's a holder for you you know if it's an if it's a hollow name i don't know though i don't know it's worth looking into yeah maybe it's a hollow name maybe it's a you know this is you insert name right. insert name here kind of thing maybe um, that could be i don't know you know that's interesting that you say that these are the power these are and they're they're earthy powers because they're dwarves right they're not any kind of creature they're right. dwarves and these are these earthly powers, uh, earthy. And he lives, he too lives in the earth, right? He's surrounded by earth. So it's like these things come in out of the walls and, and they shake up, right? They sing a song, they, they threaten to, to break all his stuff and crack his plates and, and really upend his, his comfortable little cottage life. Hmm. But then they sing a different song. Yes. And that's, that's, there's a power, there's a magic in that. And that's, you know, they, they put a spell, and this is, this is the beautiful thing. I mean, this is the old Anglo-Saxon word for story, for a tale, is spell. The yes. way we talk about a magic spell is the same word for a story that's told, except in that culture, right? And as you know, in Nordic culture, 
you don't tell stories you sing them and so yeah. these guys are singing a spell and yeah. it has a magical power to it and, from, and we, we get a glimpse of that a little bit but yeah, go ahead well I was going to say, in our culture, the God spell is our most familiar use of that term, the story of God, the God spell. Right. And that's why God's spell and the other scriptures were, up until recently, always sung in the Mass. And they still, they right. were Anglican church still. You mm -hmm. don't sing them, much like the Jews used to use the gold finger in order to point at the Torah, you know, right. because so special a thing. This is so at the core of who we are as a society that you don't denigrate it by bringing it into the ordinary vulgar tongue of, of, of speech. You elevate right. it to a poetic level. Yeah. So they sing their, their raison d'etre, their mode, their motive, their, right. their, for being, their, motive, their, their, their narrative, their story, their identity is sung, right? Mm -hmm. They sing it. And, and, and Tolkien's even dis his description of it, if I may read just directly. Here. Yep. So they began to play while the shadow of Gandalf's beard wagged against the wall. The dark filled all the room. The fire died down and the shadows were lost and still they played on. And suddenly, suddenly, so they were playing music. And then suddenly first one, and then another began to sing as they played a, the deep-throated singing of the dwarves in the deep places of their ancient homes. And he, Tolkien tells us then, and this is like a fragment of their song, if it can be like their song without their music. So Tolkien is saying, I have glimpsed something of this in my mystical vision. I've, you know, Omuse, this is where he should turn and say, Omuse, help me to, to, to like bring these things down into the mundane, natural speech of man and try and render them in some intelligible way to my readers. And so what we see here isn't their song, but it's the most distilled down, watered, made tangible thing for us. But it was a much higher and fuller and almost as if you couldn't actually, Tolkien, you know, John couldn't write it in the book because it would be not safe. It would cause, it would be the spell itself. You can't do that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Kind of like where Gandalf says, I refuse to utter the tongue of the Urakai, you know, the language of right. Mordor in your hobbit. Right. Do that. Exactly. You know, maybe. and it's a song that's, it's, and it's, some, we get this song three times. We get the song three at three major moments in the story. Now, at the beginning of the journey, we get the song in the hall of Beorn. That's so right. Beorn goes out for the night, and they're left in the dark in the in the house of the wild now. And then the third time is in the lonely mountain when they're besieged by the men and the elves. After the dragon is slain, they sing the song again, and it, each time it takes on a different nuance corresponding to the point in the in the tale in which we are but it's always fundamentally the same song so they keep singing the dwarves have they've got one hit they're a one-hit wonder they've got one song that they keep singing but it becomes in so here it's a song of longing to reclaim their heritage yeah in yeah. in the house of Bjorn, there's a sense of we're, we're getting closer but when they're besieged in the lonely mountain it's a song of vengeance it's a song of wrath against all enemies, that they too may perish. But who are the enemies at this point? They're your friends. These are people who have come to you asking for help. Yeah, because they've taken on the... turn sinister. Yeah. 
They've taken on the yeah. seed. They've become the dragon. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So We're the not there yet, but this is repeated, so it's it's important to pay attention to. So so people have been critical of Tolkien before as not having religion in the book, you know. But it, you could say in a way that for the dwarves, this is like their credo. This is their religious it mantra. Is. Yeah. What's precisely it? And so if you look at what the do you do when we recite the creed? We're, we're telling yeah, right. the story of the things that happened, and then the bad thing happened, and then the yeah. good thing's going to happen. Or I'm thinking of on Easter when they recite the Gospels leading up to the resurrection, or they recite the, right. uh, this is the night, you know, that whole thing. Mm -hmm. Our recitation of who we are as Christians, you know, it's a similar thing. Right. So for the dwarves, you have these three stages where they're, they're telling them, and this is good, because I've never really thought about this before, Cameron. If that's the case, you're looking at the, the, the credo, being used in three ways. The last mm -hmm. one is not nice. It's not a good way to use the credo as a, you know, right. a deus volt, you know, now we're going to go yeah. people now that we have established right. ourselves here in the, in the Western world, let's go kick ass on whether the disagrees. Right. <laughs> Wait, that, that's not quite what Christ wanted. <laughs> Hold on right. guys. Shut up Lord. Right. Um, that's really fascinating. Yeah. I, I think that if I, you know, I, I'm going to give credit to Jackson here. I really do think he did that well in the movie because the singing of that song is extremely powerful in the movie. And I think he captured something of, as you say, the magic of that song. It is a very mm -hmm. bewitching tune, a very bewitching sort of somber reflection on who they are as a people. We yeah. are, we're scattered. We have experienced the diaspora. But we're going to mm -hmm. go back and get our heritage again, going right. back, establish uh, our lands there in the Middle East. Yeah, and there's a there's a, a there's a there's a creative power to this, not only in the in the ambiance and the effect that it creates, but it actually generates something in Bilbo. Right, this it's this song that yes. begins the 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 death and rebirth yeah. of of Bilbo here in a minor way. We see in a major way later, but which is yeah. what our it's another thing that art does, doesn't it? It, it recreates yeah. across the world. It, 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 sorry, telephone. It has us thinking about what the world really is about again, which we have forgotten. It's like William Carlos Williams with the red wheelbarrow. You know, everything's changed, transfigured, glazed. Mm -hmm. so, so you have a, a world that's actually beautiful for the first time again. You hadn't seen it that way. Right. Read this poem or hear this song or whatever, or see this movie even. And, and wow, that's... I hadn't thought about that in a long time. So yeah, yeah. it does in him that ability to then rush out the house in the morning. Right. right. And but he's not and he's not yet creative. Bilbo sings a song, but only at the very end of the book. And that's when Gandalf remarks, Ah, oh, you have changed. So we see that there's a seed planted that music, that song has this power. Wow. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably why he didn't write, write down, you know. Full full notation for it or whatever because it probably would have right. been a little It'd be dangerous. Yeah, dangerous. Yeah, it does. It does lead to a question about and we you know just for the record we have about uh, ten minutes left on my timer, but okay. um, yeah, it does raise that bigger question which we'll probably come back to in later chapters of what is it that we're about with mythology in general? What are we mm -hmm. about with art in general? What are we doing with art? Is the whole purpose of art, as I've said before here, anagogical? to make us reflect on ourselves, because I think it is. But is it also perhaps in order to awaken in us that desire 
to go on journeys that desire to quest for things, you know, yeah. um, which isn't a, you know, it's not dragonish. It's a good desire, actually, I think. Let's pursue a dragon does not go on a quest, right? A dragon likes to sit on their horse, yeah. steal somebody else's stuff, and then sit on, yeah. which is not questing, right? It's the opposite. It's that power gone bad versus power channeled towards uh, on pilgrimage of some sort, seeking yeah. a grail, right? Seeking a grail and and therefore establishing a great society in order to be able to accomplish that sort of thing, making right. something valuable to other people. Um, and going out of your way to help other people, which is what Bilba does later on with uh, right. at great know. risk to himself. Yeah, right. But here at the beginning, he, he like I said, he's not. He's sterile. There is no Mrs. Bilbo or little Bilbo's running around. He's sterile, around. and so exactly. there's no. Um, he's not giving anything to the world. So that song awakens in him not just the desire for himself to get gold. It, it awakens in him a desire to to emerge forth into the world and 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 um, do things right. for the world in a way. Right. right. There's a magnanimity that's born here. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Are you in for greatness? It, 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 it awakens a magnanimity in a person or can awaken. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's that. So then this as a piece of art then is not just for us to, for, for, for me to understand myself better, but it's a fire. It's meant to be a fire to kindle something in me to go and do and not merely uh, navel gaze. Yes. Uh, what do they call that? Um, not evocative, but uh, hortatory. It's a hortatory, right? Yes. It hortatorts you in order to get out into the world. That's just, right. It torts you out of your orto and you have to go. Uh, that is to say, it turns you out of your garden to, to translate <laughs> that into English. Yeah. You know, that's a really good place to stop. Uh, I think one last thought yeah. on this, the, the very ending of the chapter, okay, where he mm -hmm. uh, getting sleepy and the Turkish side says is wearing off and uh, he's not quite yeah. sure to do this. Right. He's tired. And as he's going right. to sleep, here's that song. So it enters into his dreams, right? Because part of yeah. his dreams. And then the ending of the chapter is not just he fell asleep because Tolkien frequently does that. The ending of a chapter is like they fell asleep in the next chapter. Here he doesn't do that. Right. Chapter one ends as Bilbo went to sleep yeah. with this in his ears. It gave him very uncomfortable dreams. <laughs> and then <laughs> exactly. it was long after the break of day when he woke up. Right. Yeah. It ends with him waking up. Yeah, I know. That's good. That's so awesome. <laughs> that's cool. It's a good place to stop, camera. <laughs> that's a wrap. <laughs> that's a wrap. Okay, good. Well, I tell you what, this is fantastic. And I, I think yeah. that I look forward to looking at part two, you know, chapter two with you. And uh, yeah, it's going to roast mutton. Roast mutton. Let's let's see if we can do a little legwork, find out if we can anything about names of Bilbo and find out about yeah. yeah, if we can get that to work. concludes another episode of Avalon Mentors Podcast. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the show, 
Would you kindly thumb the like button and also give the show a positive review on whatever platform you're listening on? Until next time, cast off the works of darkness, put upon you the armor of light. So long.